This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The governor is our guest today. And in our regular interview at the state capitol, we start with something of a round robin, where he stands on the rather hefty ballot issues Coloradans will vote on this fall. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. So you've already said no to Colorado Care, the sort of single-payer health care system. Uh, what about two measures that deal with elections, one to allow unaffiliated voters into state primaries, and one to create a presidential primary and allow unaffiliated voters in that as well? I support the presidential primary because I think it's good for Colorado. I think that it puts us on the map, and it gets more people involved in the, in the primary. Versus a caucus. Versus a caucus. All right. uh, and, and again, I enjoy the caucus. I've been going to the caucus a lot. <laughs> but it's caucuses, especially if a lot of people do get involved, like they did this cycle. And get pretty harried. It was, yeah, it was very yeah. harried and very stressful. And as for unaffiliated voters in state primaries? I think I support this. If you think about it, independent voters, they're paying taxes, they're paying for these primary elections. They should be allowed to have a role in that. Uh, I think it makes perfect sense. Okay, how, uh, about, how about a proposal to raise the tobacco tax by $315 million? I can see both sides. The, the, the part that makes me sympathetic to that increase is the fact that there is literally no other way that gets people to quit smoking, no better way, especially young people from low-income backgrounds, than to raise the cost. Now, did they need to raise it this much? You know, the studies show that you, you know, for every 10% you raise the, the price, you reduce the number of smokers by 4%. We're talking about saving thousands of lives. So you're sympathetic. Is that a yes? I, I think I'm going to think about it a little bit longer. An initiative to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour phased in through 2020. Yeah, that's, a, a, again, we're, I'm going to, I'm sympathetic to it. I haven't made up my mind on it. They're not increasing what's called the tip credit. And this is something that, you know, if you run an independent restaurant, if you've got a restaurant downtown, and I'm not talking about fast food places, but where you have tipped employees, they generally make more than almost anybody but the manager, right? If you're a busy restaurant, the bartenders, the wait staff, they'll make 20 or 25, sometimes 30 bucks an hour. This would give them a, a raise as well. And the way the federal government has historically dealt with this is they have what's called a tip credit. And it means that for your tipped employees, you still give them a minimum wage, but it's half of whatever the minimum wage is. Right. And I think that the people that put this together were lobbied intensely by the Restaurant Association. But for re- And I haven't had a chance to talk to them, but, but they did, were not willing to create the, a tip credit that would compensate. Again, most independent... So you're sympathetic, but the lack of a tip credit makes you... Makes me, makes it, it gives me a second thought. An initiative for medically assisted death. This would allow terminally ill patients to get prescriptions for drugs they could use to end their lives. Yes, and I think that the, the fact that you have to have multiple doctors sign off on this, uh, that it's been used in Oregon and Washington... Uh, without calamity, and, and, and very, very few people take advantage of this. Uh, it's interesting that one of the studies we saw, I think it was fourteen or 1,500 patients applied for the drugs because they had, were in such pain that they wanted to take their lives, and then more than a third chose not to. Hmm. But, so but, you but su- having it there. You support the idea of this? Uh, I'd say I'm sympathetic to it and, and leaning towards supporting it. All right. Another, that, that's pretty good, though. I mean, I mean for, this, this early in the, in the election, that's not bad. For John Hickenlooper, yeah, this exactly. early in the election, it's pretty good. Moving forward, yes. Uh, another would remove an 1876 reference to slavery in the state constitution uh, that yeah, ha, ha, prohibits slavery, quoting here, except as punishment for a crime. This was referred by the legislature. Sure, no problem. I, I support that. 
Let's talk about what's not on the ballot. Okay. So two proposals that failed to make it would have limited fracking. About 80,000 people signed petitions for each of those. What further steps do you think are needed to ease public concern on that issue? Where, where do you go from here? Well, I think the, the dialogue that we've had over these past, that's been four years or five years, and, and I realize that there are a number of people who don't think it's gone fast enough or far enough, but I think we've made dramatic progress. I mean, we're the only state that has full-blown methane, fugitive emissions, any methane that's leaking out. We make the oil companies go out and test multiple times a year to make sure there are no leaks. And they're doing it. And we are closing in those leaks. We are diminishing dramatically the waste. I think where, where you have drilling in proximity to neighborhoods, schools, hospitals, communities, and, and I'm, I'm not just 500 feet, but 1,000, 2,000 feet. Because this was a, a major concern driving one of the ballot measures. Yeah, and both think, of them, really. Well, but, but I think the ballot measures had wanted to give the local community the right to ban fracking or ban uh, drilling. I'm not sure that's a good idea unless you willing really to, through eminent domain or some process, compensate people for what you're taking. But I think that you can reasonably look at things like sound, noise, and, and, and appearances. And in many cases, the responsible operators, and I think most of the operators we have in Colorado are very responsible, but they are using electric rigs if they're within a quarter mile of, of a residential neighborhood. So it's quiet. And you know how those towers, and these things, they, they drill now, they, they'll only be there for a month or a month and a half, but they'll put a cover over the tower so you don't see all those lights. But do you think there's more room for improvement there? Yeah, I think there's more, more discussion, more negotiation. I think what we're, we're trying to do is create an interface. And, uh, what know, is that, an interface? An interface, a, a place, a, 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 a framework, a structure by which the uh, local leaders can come together with whoever the operator is and negotiate with them in good faith to say, all right, how can we you know, get the, the hydrocarbon out of there, or the natural gas or the oil, whatever you're pulling out, in such a way that it doesn't impact or in a minimal way it impacts our, our neighborhood. And I think those discussions, if you look at what those discussions used to look like five years ago, and what they look like now, it's totally different. Five years ago, it was screaming, and we're not going to pay attention. We don't have to pay attention to you. Whereas now, pretty much, with, with a couple of rare exceptions, pretty much always, the operators are sitting down with county commissioners and municipal leaders and saying, all right, what can we do? And here's what we can do. And how about if we do this? And what if we do that? And we won't drill over here if we can drill over there. Let's hear an election year question from a listener. Seth Levy is a professional driver and lives in Gypsum on the Western Slope. And a Levy asks about the political makeup of the legislature. Right now, Democrats control the state house and Republicans the Senate by a single vote there. Experts say there's a chance the Senate could go to the Democrats in November. And here is Levy's question. If the Democrats regain total control of the legislature, what agenda items would you take up that were shelved after the Republicans got a majority in the state Senate? I would really push for a either the hospital provider fee, but some process by which uh, we are able to take, without raising taxes, but take the tax revenue already raised and be able to use that for transportation infrastructure. Uh, hopefully some of it would be available for higher education, uh, for education. We're still way far behind in terms of what Amendment 23 says we should be spending on K-12 education, what we are. So The hospital provider fee, I'll say, was a, a thorny issue in the last session. You wanted to take it out from under TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, and thus free up 
uh, money for roads and uh, other priorities, as you say. It doesn't solve all our problems. I, I, I think we need to look for other resources to I – mean, we are hundreds of millions of dollars a year behind in terms of transportation investments. And if you look at our neighbors in Utah, we've talked about this before, the hospital provider fee won't be the, the total solution, but it will go a long way down the road to you know, getting rid of some of the congestion and logjam that we see every day. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's Democratic Governor, John Hickenlooper. You've been working on an executive order to further cut carbon emissions from power plants. This is in line with the Obama administration's clean power plan. As you know, the U.S. Supreme Court put the president's plan on hold earlier this year after states, including Colorado, sued And last spring, the legislature threatened to essentially eliminate a state agency if it kept working on the clean power plan. So why draft this executive order now instead of waiting for these questions to be resolved? Well, I think the clean power plan might wind its way through court for years. Our goal has been, from the beginning, to say, how can we get cleaner air without having a big jump in cost to our ratepayers, to the businesses and the families that depend on electricity in Colorado. So back then, a year and a half, two years ago, we thought, well, for less than the cost of inflation, so in essence, for the same cost you're paying for your power now, so maybe it would go up 1% or 1.5%, but essentially, we believe that we could get significantly cleaner air and get to the goals of the clean power plan without additional cost. So we just talked to the utilities, we talked to the energy companies, and that seemed doable. So we said, we're going to start putting that together in a plan. Well, now I think the next step, and that's what the executive order is, hey, let's see how far we can go. How, how, how clean can we get our air if we use that as our restraint? The we, draft order would cut carbon emissions from the, the power industry in particular by 35 percent. Well, wait, wait, wait. Well, so this is the, the executive order. That's a draft. Yeah. So we don't know whether it's 32 percent or 35 percent or 40 percent. By 2030 yep. compared to 2012 levels. Yep. So the goal is to say, all right, how far can we go? Is, is this is the best we can do? Is there some moonshot out there where we think we could get even cleaner air for within that same cost? The challenge here is, all right, how do we go about you know, making sure everyone's on the same page, that we all agree that if we can get cleaner energy for the same cost, shouldn't we go for it? Yeah, this is related in particular to the generation of power. So could you give us just a few examples of how this would be achieved? Well, there are a number of aging coal plants that are scheduled to be, you know, at one point or another mothballed, and some of them are much less efficient. Relative to the amount of power you're producing, they create a lot of pollution. Would it make sense to uh, mothball those a few years sooner? There's a capital cost that somebody's put up for those plants, so you've got to account for that. But even as you're doing paying that down, some of the renewable, some of the natural gas is so inexpensive that you can do that without having that to raise prices. If that's a possibility, I think it would be government malpractice if you had the opportunity to have cleaner air for the same cost for, for you not to at least pursue it and look into it. We spoke with State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg. He's a Republican from Sterling on the Eastern Plains, and he says, you are exceeding your authority. It's all about the Constitution and our separation of powers. The legislature needs to be involved in these type of policy decisions, and you can't take a 
page out of the Obama playbook, and if you can't get something done through the legislature, then do an executive order. Well, maybe maybe Senator Sonnenberg would be well served to call up. He's got my cell phone number, and we could discuss that. We're not trying to take any pages from anybody's playbook, right? If we embark on this goal, I'm sure that we will need legislation to do it. We're not talking about circumventing any of the traditional processes. So you think that legislation might grow out of this? Oh, I think absolutely. There would be parts of it that would be, I would assume, to get to these goals, it would be impossible without legislation. So if that's their major concern, they should be able to sleep comfortably tonight. Well, another concern is that there will be uh, a hit to consumers. That's why I said at the beginning, and I will say again, that the whole point of this is to say, all right, Let's look at and set inflation and say that's the cap as we create this plan and as we talk to the legislature. You know, I'm not sure what Senator Sonnenberg or, I mean, they seem to have this resistance to getting the air cleaner. Now, I'm sure that's not the case, but that's the way it sounds to me, right? I'm sure they don't feel that way. But if I'm talking about creating a plan that for the same cost, we can actually have cleaner air, why have we become so partisan that that's got to become a political issue? You're, you're in a rare state of being whipped up on this. I'm not whipped up. I, just, <laughs> I mean, here we are going out to the state of Colorado where we know that at a, we're at a higher elevation. The quality of our air is, matters more to us than to most other states. We think, working together, that we might be able to get where we can significantly clean our air without costing the consumers or businesses more money. One cost might be to coal miners, some of whom have already lost their jobs, uh, coal production has dropped 50% in Colorado since 2004. What specific steps is your administration taking to help those folks as their livelihoods disappear? The use of coal has been diminishing over the last decade, not, not just in Colorado, everywhere, and it's a market-driven issue. Inexpensive natural gas, the drop in, if you look at wind energy, even solar energy is becoming dramatically less expensive. And that's made coal, which is, you know, labor-intensive to produce, and it is dirtier, but now it's also not even economic. And to the workers that are uh, swept away in this trend? Well, if a, if a state mandate does accelerate uh, the loss of an industry, I think the state should really take some responsibility and, and make sure there's resources for retraining. And what does that look like on the ground? Our, our Office of Labor and Employment is coming forward with an emergency rule uh, that in the event of a localized or statewide uh, downturn in a particular industry, uh, mass layoff, something that threatens a region's economy, uh, unemployment benefits will be able to remain in place as long as you are in a qualified retraining program. To a certain extent, when you have a downturn in, in any industry, there's always dislocation, right? Look at the oil and gas industry. Just uh, as a point of reference, in the last year and a half, we've lost thousands and thousands of jobs in the oil and gas industry, but that's not the same as in the coal industry where the jobs are more localized in very small rural communities. And, that, and that's the other thing we're trying to do is figure out how can we help those impacted communities. And jobs that are quite lucrative. I'll just say that the president of the Colorado Mining Association has been quoted as saying that Colorado coal miners earn an average of $135,000 a year. That's in wages and benefits. So a key question is whether they can restore those levels of income. Uh, I think those, those levels of income are hard to restore anywhere. Finally, the political chattering class is talking about you more and more for a cabinet post. <laughs> Which one? 
Um, it's hard for me to see which one now. So well, you, you, the interior, I, I think the environmental community, because I think I just finished defending fracking again. Uh-huh. So I'm going to guess that's probably not going to go over very well. Which other ones were they thinking about? Um, gosh, I, well, I feel like I'm adding to the echo chamber. I heard transportation. <laughs> transportation. Yeah, I don't think. I think Ed Rendell, who's a former governor of Pennsylvania, is heading the National Transportation Infrastructure Commission. I think it's pretty likely that's kind of an assumption within the universe that that's where he's going to end up. How much time do you think you'll spend campaigning for Secretary Clinton this fall? Well, probably not. I mean, I'm busy, so probably not that much. Uh, Have you uh, carved out a certain percentage in your schedule or something? I haven't. I, when the opportunity, when I'm asked, uh, usually we try and carve, you know, just squeeze it into the existing schedule. But the, the truth be told, over the last few weeks, I can maybe once a week or something I'll go, and, and usually it's a very brief... Uh, usually they have celebrities and kind of big deals that come in and do that kind of campaigning. So not you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So not I me. think that's what you were implying. <laughs> I'm not putting words in your mouth then. Governor, thanks for being with us. No, always a pleasure. Democrat John Higginlooper is governor of Colorado and speaks with us regularly at the state capitol. Coming up, a Latino Trump supporter reflects on the candidate's big immigration speech last night. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We've admitted 59 million immigrants to the United States between 1965 and 2015. Many of these arrivals have greatly enriched our country. So true. That is one of the few positive things Donald Trump said about immigrants in the U.S. in a speech last night. He largely focused on the danger posed by people in the country illegally and on his plans to make legal immigration more difficult. Let's talk about the Republican nominee's immigration plans with Jerry Natividad. He's a Colorado businessman and a leader in the Latino community here. He was skeptical of Trump at first, then met with him a couple of weeks ago in New York, along with other Latino leaders. And last week, Natividad officially joined the Trump campaign as co-chair of Hispanics for Trump in Colorado. And Jerry, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Trump wants to admit fewer people legally, and he wants to change how the country decides who gets in and who doesn't. To select immigrants based on their likelihood of success in U.S. society and their ability to be financially self-sufficient. Do we take anybody? Come on in, anybody. Just come on in. Not anymore. Does that mean that if someone doesn't have a college degree or isn't already somewhat well-off, that they're not welcome under a Trump administration? Well, I don't, Ryan, I, I don't think that that's uh, specifically what uh, Donald Trump is is speaking to. Uh, you know, uh, this country, obviously, as we all know, was, was built uh, by immigrants. Uh, and those immigrants that came to this country came with a very definite distinction of wanting to create a better life in a better environment, which creates a greater country. A distinction from what? You're saying that current immigrants don't come with those hopes? Well, I, I think that uh, we we really don't know uh, what that mix is that it's coming in. I mean, if we, if we were to take a look at uh, what the profile looks like today, I mean, I think that there is a mix of unskilled labor that has come. There's a mix of individuals that have some form of higher degree, whether it be medical or 
uh, engineering or something of this nature. And I think that when we take a look at the entire economy, the question is, what is it that we need to continue to make this country great? Uh, is it unskilled labor? Is it individuals that uh, are degreed, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And, and I think Donald Trump is exactly right, is that at this point in time, it's very porous. I think it is a case of anyone that wants to come here uh, can come here. And here's what's really troubling about that is that there's a big threat going on in this country by the poorest borders and, and by the lack of security. And, and that's all relative to terrorism and, and things of this nature. And so we absolutely need to control the inflow of who is coming in. We need to scrutinize that. Not to, not to penalize, Ryan, but to make sure that we understand that those individuals that are coming here are coming here for a couple of different reasons. One is, Ryan, that they are going to bring something of value to this country, not just escaping maybe a situation that, 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 where they lived, but they, there has to be some sort of value here. Uh, we need to be able to supplement uh, the skills and, 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 and all the crafts and the qualities that we have here with other individuals that want to enter this country. But decisions about who gets to come to the U.S. have traditionally been made based on what country they're coming from, maybe whether they have family in the U.S., things that are more agnostic as to the financial or educational attainment of a prospective immigrant. You know, that's one reason the U.S. is known as the land of opportunity for people who want to build a better life. You are a person of faith. Do you hear enough compassion in in this vetting that Trump proposes? Well, I think uh, I'll say this about Donald Trump. I, I believe that he is a very compassionate individual. individual. Uh, you know, he employs thousands and thousands of individuals that have helped create a great organization. This is not an organization, and he acknowledges this, that he created by himself. It was a part of a group of employees that helped him build what he has today, and he understands that, he values that, and he's very compassionate about that, and he's very sensitive about that. And so I think that he is a very sensitive individual. Uh, he is a business person, and business people typically have a very strong, forward uh, manner of delivering a message. Uh, you know, business owners, uh, particularly private business owners like himself and myself, we've had to control our life. We've had to control the income and the outgo. We have been responsible for signing that check. We have been responsible for signing on the bottom line. So we're very bold and we're very daring. But yet, as in my company, we're very compassionate about the needs of individuals. Even some Republicans have called Trump racist. And that's in really a direct conflict with your perception of him as compassionate. What do you say? Well, I, I you know, every, everyone has a right uh, to uh, have a perception on an individual. And, and I'll be honest with you, Ryan. Uh, I was troubled uh, when he made his announcement in Trump Towers and the message that he, that he, uh, that he extended uh, relative to uh, Mexican immigrants into the, into the country. I actually Talking about rapists and criminals. Uh, yeah, I, I actually cringed. Uh, but, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that when you really uh, dissect uh, that comment and you take a look at what is going on in our southern borders today, where there are illegal people that are transporting drugs into this country. And these individuals are coming not only with drugs, but they're coming with bad values, bad morals, and they're actually criminals. And these are the individuals that, are, that he's speaking about. I want to push back on a few things. First of all, the notion that the, the border is porous. The Obama administration has added 
officers at the border. So it's not as if the presence at the border has weakened in any great regard. Uh, it appears that since the downturn uh, and and through the recovery, that Mexican immigration in particular is actually negative. There are more people going back to Mexico than coming into the United States. Is some of this based on a, a, a misperception of what's happening at the border? Well, I think you missed the point, uh, Ryan. The point that I made is this. Uh, and I think that this is exactly what Donald Trump was referring to. He says, when we take a look at this border, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, there have been additional resources that have been placed along the southern border, but that has not stopped the drug trafficking that is going on. That has not stopped uh, the things that are going on that include drugs and the cartels and, and the killings that take place here in the United States. I mean, we are, we are Mexico's biggest market when it comes to either marijuana or methamphetamines or anything of this nature. So even though uh, maybe that count that you referred to has dropped, that hasn't stopped in terms of the drugs that I've just referred to. And that is something that has to become an absolute priority because you know those drugs are, are horrible and they're deteriorating our youth. There's often the focus on the purveyors of the drugs, not the buyers. The buyers are on this side of the border. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. We're, we're, we're the biggest market for Mexico. Mm-hmm. Is there something to reflect on there, perhaps? Well, uh, uh, you know, uh, short of trying to stop uh, illegal drugs from com- uh, coming to the United States, uh, you know, when we talk about, uh, and I don't want to get into the Second Amendment, when we talk about weapons and things of this nature, I think culturally here, uh, we have to ask ourselves, why are we so readily available to buy those drugs? A key question for the next president is what to do about the immigrants illegally in the country now. In Colorado, there are about 180,000 undocumented immigrants, according to the Pew Research Center. That's about 180,000 of 11 million immigrants in the country illegally. That's been relatively stable, those numbers, over about five years. So Trump has been asked repeatedly what he'll do with the people already here. And he's been pretty consistent, including last night. For those here illegally today who are seeking legal status... They will have one route and one route only to return home and apply for reentry like everybody else under the rules of the new legal immigration system that I have outlined above. So Trump said he would triple the number of ICE deportation officers in that speech. And for a better sense of what removal would look like, I want to play this exchange that he had with MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski. Are you going to have a massive deportation force? You're going to have a deportation force and you're going to do it humanely and you're going to bring the country. And frankly, the people, because you have some excellent, wonderful people, some fantastic people that have been here for a long period of time. Don't forget, Mika. That you... What is your sense of what removal would look like and what the timeline would be? Well, Ryan, uh, uh, this is where I would have to disagree with our nominee's uh, position with one exception. Uh, The immigration laws today are very clear in terms of citizenship to the United States. Uh, There is a process for everyone that wants to become a citizen. And I believe that Donald Trump makes that reference. And I think that by law, by the current laws that are on the books – Uh, That is the process that if you want to become a citizen of the United States, you have to follow the process that's already on the books. I think that's what he continues to refer to. 
Uh, where where do you differ f- from him? Uh, well, my differ is when we talk about uh, the numbers that you referenced here in the state of Colorado, and of course uh, nationally, the eleven plus million, which I think is a conservative number. These are individuals, uh, Ryan, uh, that have been here for many years, uh, perhaps 15, 20, 25 uh, years. Uh, They've raised families. Uh, Those families are raising families. Uh, They've bought homes. Uh, Many of them are probably suited to retire at one point in time here in their life. Uh, They've all but assimilated with the exception of, of that one document that says that they are a citizen. Uh, I think that where I disagree with uh, Donald Trump is, is it is it reality to suggest that this count needs to leave this country and reapply? Is that reality? Now, look, I am not an amnesty person. I believe that you must follow the letter of the law. But I also I mean, what you're talking about sounds a lot like amnesty. Well, it's not, uh, because amnesty is basically this. Amnesty is giving anyone an opportunity to become a citizen by bypassing the process. And I've been very clear that there are immigration laws that must be followed. However, in lieu of amnesty, there must be a process that allows these individuals that we're referring to, to at least to gain some sort of legal status that gives them more participation in this country that they have fallen in love with. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And in light of Donald Trump's uh, speech last night on immigration and immigration reform, we are speaking with Jerry Natividad, who is one of the co-chairs of Hispanics for Trump in Colorado. I just want to contrast what we've heard from Mr. Trump with Secretary Clinton, who says that she will introduce comprehensive immigration reform, a pathway to full and equal citizenship within her first 100 days in office. It will treat everyone with dignity, fix the family visa backlog, uphold the rule of law, protect our borders and national security. In some regards, uh, your desire for some pathway to legality uh, matches more with, with Secretary Clinton than with Donald Trump. You know, you know, Ryan, uh, immigration reform has been a topic that has been used for the last 20 years. Uh, and more importantly, what you've just cited uh, in terms of uh, what Hillary Clinton has said, uh, and I'm going to use the word plagiarizing, it almost sounds like she plagiarized the same exact words that uh, President Obama used in 2008 when he was reaching out to the Hispanic community and said the same exact thing. Well, they're both Democrats, and she espouses many of his policies, so I'm not sure if it's plagiarism. Well, well, I, I, you know, uh, why can't she come up with something that's more creative? And as a matter of fact, he failed. He lied to the Hispanic community. He pandered and he lied. Within the first hundred days of his tenure in 2008, he did nothing but pass Obamacare. He lied to the Hispanic community. What is to make us think that Hillary now is going to act on that? I mean, she's she's in the midst of a of a of a bunch of lies right now. Why aren't you equally as frustrated with the U.S. House? The U.S. Senate passed an immigration bill, and the House did not act on it. Well, why didn't that take place in the first hundred days that uh, that Obama said that he was going to? Uh, okay, so it didn't take place in the first one hundred days, but isn't there? Well, that some was the opportunity. Mm-hmm. They the, the Democrats controlled the White House, and they controlled a Senate. And and so the, the difference House- is that the Republicans got in in the way. You were saying. No, I'm not saying that at all. I, I, well, the the when, change when, after the 100 days well, is that Republicans well, took control well, of the but, House. But, but, but if you're going to make an impact, 
If you're going to make a change, and if you're going to honor a commitment that you made to the Hispanic community, honor it. You, the President Obama made it very clear that this is what he was going to do in the first 100 days, Ryan, and he lied, and it didn't happen, and he had the opportunity. To the most talked about aspect of the Trump immigration plan, expanding the border wall with Mexico, putting aside the logistical difficulties of negotiating with private landowners along the border, complying with environmental regulations with regards to rivers along the border, there's the issue of cost. Do you agree with Trump's idea of a wall? And do you think it's worth the presumably billions of dollars it could cost the United States, assuming Mexico doesn't pay, as that country's president reiterated yesterday? Well, I absolutely believe that we need to secure the border. Uh, The method of securing that border will probably be of multiple means. Uh, We certainly understand the topography challenges and and all the other challenges that uh, that come along with uh, with land ownership and, and things of this nature. Uh, there still is room uh, for continuance of the wall that was started. Uh, we think that that needs to take place. Uh, second to that, where that's not adaptable to that particular segment of the border, uh, there needs to be increased uh, technology, uh, very much like the technology that we're using now. Uh, so the wall uh, will, will hamper uh, and help prohibit easy flow of traffic uh, from one country to the other, uh, which means that now we can tap into other resources to protect the areas that uh, perhaps aren't adaptable to the wall. It's a more nuanced picture of the wall, Jerry, the TV dad, than we often hear from Trump himself. Well, uh, you know, politics has a strange way of, of, of catching those buzzwords, Ryan. I'd like to wrap up with a trip that you made to New York to meet with Mr. Trump, mm-hmm. uh, with other Hispanic leaders. Mm-hmm. What did you hear from him or what did, I guess more importantly, what did you tell him and did he absorb it? When you watched the speech last night, do you have some sense that he heard you? Ryan, uh, when we met uh, and we met prior to the meeting on Saturday, uh, we sat and we discussed the things that we felt were critical for him to be aware of. Uh, Give me the top top item very quickly. Well, uh, the one item is what we've talked here on on the program is uh, those 11 million plus undocumented uh, individuals that have been here for the time that we've spoke about, and, and not mass deportations. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know what uh, what needs to take place there, and we understand we understand today uh, that uh, during the uh, election campaign. Uh, that there has to be a message, but we also understand that there are laws today that are on the books that need to be followed. Uh, when we take a look at this, one of the things that, that we were hoping to see, uh, and perhaps we'll see this, is uh, a very aggressive but sensitive immigration reform uh, package that he will initiate. Did you see that last night, yes or no? We didn't see it. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. Lakewood businessman Jerry Natividad runs the American Facility Services Group. He's a leader of the Hispanics for Trump group in Colorado, and we talked about the GOP candidate's immigration policies, which he outlined in a speech last night in Phoenix. At CPRnews.org, hear a conversation with a surrogate for Hillary Clinton. My colleague Andrea Dukakis spoke with her national campaign manager. And we'll be right back with A Nation Engaged, a joint election year project of NPR and member stations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What is America's role in the world and how might it change? NPR and member stations like ours are asking that this week, part of an election year project called A Nation Engaged. 
Former Ambassador Christopher Hill has a unique perspective. As a diplomat, he was heavily involved with negotiations in Iraq, the Balkans, and North Korea. He is now dean of the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. And we wanted his perspective on what's driving future diplomats to get into foreign policy that will obviously shape this question of what is America's role in the world. And Ambassador, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. You were the son of a diplomat, and you write in your book Outpost about being inspired by your work in the Peace Corps. When you look at the students at the Corbell School, what is inspiring them to study foreign affairs? What have you heard? Well, first of all, there are many different paths to being uh, a diplomat. It is not just a question of working for the State Department anymore. There are all kinds of organizations, NGOs. There's the international organizations such as the UN. And so what you're seeing is people kind of getting involved in international affairs through all kinds of uh, different ways. First thing I think people need to understand is the United States is still it. I mean, for all the predictions of our demise, you have to answer the question, well, if not the U.S., then who? else. And uh, when you kind of look around the landscape in the world, you don't see too many other countries. So it's still the U.S. We're still a key country. And I think uh, a lot of people uh, understand that, especially young people, and they're very much interested in getting engaged. Is the coursework very different today than when you were taught? Well, I mean, there are a lot of different things. I mean, when I was uh, going through school, it was sort of learn your European history. If you understand European history, you're good to go. But uh, frankly speaking, there are a lot of other things going on right now. Uh, There's the whole issue of how the international economy uh, fits together, whole issue of how networks work together. It's not just about uh, states working together. It's networks. What do you mean networks? Give me an example. For example, I mean, you'll have uh, NGOs dedicated to a certain cause, let's say environment. So you'll find uh, environmentalists in the United States kind of making common cause with environmentalists in, say, South Africa. So, uh, and they may be making common cause uh, in sort of uh, uh, um, going up against uh, governments, whether in South Africa or the United States, etc. So, networks and not just your affiliate or your uh, citizenship is what can uh, really kind of drive you to one side or the other in an in, in international issue. So, it's just far more complex. Hmm. I mean, which is why you really have to use the term global rather than international because it's not just uh, between states, between nations. It's really among all kinds of different things. Oh, that's so inter- inter- the- right. Of course, international means between nations, amongst, yeah. amongst nations. And there, there are many other contenders to contend with. I also think that, that young people in your program have, for the gosh, vast majority of their lives, known the United States at war. Yeah, and this is a major factor. And I think, frankly speaking, a lot of people conflate foreign policy with national security and essentially sending in the military. Because what you strive to do is to be influential, to get people to kind of see things uh, your way, and not just on the tip of a bayonet. So uh, I think uh, being at war has kind of taken its toll in terms of how people understand diplomacy. Does it make the students more hawkish or dovish, do you think? Uh, Frankly speaking, overall, I would say more dovish. I mean, there's a sense that, uh, you know, wars are kind of grisly affairs. And, you know, people who talk blithely about uh, getting involved in a war probably haven't seen, you know, dead bodies on a street. It's a very unpleasant sight. So uh, obviously there are some situations where military – uh, military option is is the option you have to use. But ideally, it's very much of a last option, not a first option. To what extent does social media enter into diplomacy? We've had a, a fair number of conversations on this program with 
anti-terrorism experts from the FBI, for instance, who really see social media as a tool of radicalization and of fighting radicalization. And it makes me wonder to what extent diplomacy is also being waged uh, digitally. Well, you got it. I mean, social media is huge, but it's huge for the good guys and huge for the bad guys. So uh, uh, I think what you're referring to is the fact that many of the recru- much of the recruitment yeah. of these uh, in these radical groups really uh, stems from social media, and it allows people to be sort of alone and then dealing with uh, with sort of like minded others, but you know, sitting in their basement in their pajamas. So it's a kind of a uh, a frightening uh, implication that people can develop these very hardened uh, views while never actually being face-to-face with anyone. So what is the picture of the diplomat sitting in the pajamas? In other words, how do you say well, the diplomat Well, I think diplomats need to be very much uh, engaged in social media today. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find an ambassador anywhere who doesn't have a Twitter account or who, who isn't uh, active on, on Facebook. Now, I'm, mind you, I think uh, sometimes you need some old-fashioned skills, which is uh, – you know, uh, going over to the foreign ministry and try to convince people of your view on some international uh, issue rather than just sort of broadcasting from the rooftops to try to engage the general public. Mm. But increasingly, countries make up their foreign policy not just on the basis of what their equivalent of the State Department thinks, but rather as a sort of general public issue. And if you're not in that debate, if you're not sort of understanding there are all kinds of different actors, uh, some informal structures, some in these networks, as we talked about, uh, you're not going to be influential. So I think social media is very much a part, uh, is sort of maybe one of the main tools in the toolbox these days. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's take a break, then return to my discussion with Ambassador Christopher Hill, who now leads the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. As part of A Nation Engaged, this collaboration with NPR, we are today asking, what is America's role in the world? and specifically how that relates to diplomats in training. So back in a moment on CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and this week, NPR and member stations like ours are asking, what is America's role in the world? Part of a joint collaboration called A Nation Engaged. We're putting the question to former Ambassador Christopher Hill, who now leads the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and who helps train future diplomats. Uh, Ambassador Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump has questioned whether our allies pull their weight when it comes to paying for policing the world. How do you think Americans are feeling about their place in the world? And is the view changing? Well, I think we definitely have a leadership position in the world. I mean, when there are issues out there, people want to know where the U.S. stands. Uh, But we're not going to be able to maintain a leadership position without uh, people who see things like us, without friends, without allies, without people who kind of come together with us on various issues. So that becomes an issue that one would have in one's personal life. How do you maintain friends? How do you maintain contacts? How do you maintain business contacts? So one way to deal with your friends and business contacts is to uh, call them out every other day, uh, yell at them publicly. But I think you would find that you wouldn't wouldn't have too many friends and contacts at that point. So I think it's very necessary that when you have issues of burden sharing of whether country X is doing enough in terms of uh, providing for its own military and supporting us, those issues should be handled in more traditional channels where you try to work these things through. Usually kind of of uh, going public with these things is a fraught situation because you often don't know where it's going to lead. And I'm not sure Mr. Trump really knows where 
where it's going to lead. But I think that speaks to a much broader problem in the Trump uh, campaign. So you see him as lacking diplomacy and others who embrace him like that he, uh, as, as they would put it, tells it like it is. You know, uh, I think in, uh, Americans often uh, put a great premium on telling it like it is, mm-hmm. but uh, sometimes it can be overdone. And I think what you really want to do is understand where someone else is coming from on an issue and see if you can kind of figure out a way to move forward on it. If country X is not doing enough to provide for the common defense, you need to find out why and you need to try to address that. And uh, you need to be convincing. And there are times when you're going, just going to step away and say, that kind is not doing enough. There are times when you have to do that, but it's a it's a fateful and and frankly a, a fraught uh, decision because at that point when you step away, you're probably not going to be that influential because people don't like to be jammed. People don't like to be uh, hit over the head with something. It doesn't really. I mean, it doesn't work with me, and I doubt it works with you, and I it certainly doesn't work with entire countries. You've learned this working in the Balkans, North Korea, Iraq. One thing that uh, Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump have in common is opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And there does seem to be a real wariness of global trade, at least on the terms outlined in the TPP. What do you make of that? And and, uh, give us the long view on this. Well, first of all, I can understand people who somehow don't support international trade agreements because they feel that these trade agreements are are among corporations, not among uh, people who actually do the work, among labor. So these are these are tough uh, situations. These are not uh, simple-minded issues. That said, when I look at some of the trade issues, the trade uh, deals that the United States has worked on over the years, whether in the Bush administration or the Obama administration, I am of the view that the more of these kinds of trade issues, the better for all of us. Often, I mean, I've visited, I've been in countries like Malaysia when they're considering themselves what to do in the TPP. And they have to look at the fact that they have to go to much more transparent rules, much more respectful of international property, much uh, international uh, property rights, uh, issues like that. And so I feel that overall, the general thrust of trade agreements is indeed in the interests of a country like the United States, which is always sort of moving up on that technology ladder. So the issue is to try to make a trade agreement that does not cause more disruption in the U.S. than it would in another country. Any trade agreement is going to cause some some changes in labor markets, some changes in uh, in corporate structures. And I think the trick is to try to make sure we're getting a good deal. And I know that's what our negotiators are, are trying to do. I'm sure Secretary Clinton uh, would have different uh, different differences in, uh, from President Obama. But I think overall, we need to be engaged in this process. Otherwise, we will end up as a loser in the international and increasingly globalized economy. When you look at the student body at the Corbell School, what gives you hope about the direction of the, of the planet? <laughs> Well, uh, when you look at young people who, first of all, have the passion to be engaged in the world, that's very positive because, you know, a lot of Americans are saying, gosh, we've had enough of this. So I think it's a good sign when you see these, these in our case, mainly Americans, we're some 90 percent American, only 10 mm. percent foreigner, to see Americans really want to be engaged. Secondly, what I find gratifying is to see that they understand that you need to, if you're going to uh, understand issues in the world, you better stop 
talking and start listening. And so I, I find it refreshing that many of these students understand they have a lot to understand. And finally, I think there's a a growing understanding that you need to be engaged on uh, kind of new technologies. You need to understand social media, as we were talking uh, uh, a while ago about. Uh, but you also need to understand quantitative methods. You understand what is metadata. You under- and you need to understand these things. So there are a lot of skills, skill sets that really need to be mastered if you're going to be successful out there. But most of all, uh, I think what people need to understand is that it's not just being in the State Department. It's being across the range of issues uh, and institutions. And I think Americans are very good at it. The widening definition, if you will, of a diplomat. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Former Ambassador Christopher Hill, Dean now of the University of Denver's Corbell School of International Studies. We talked about America's place in the world, how his students see it, part of a collaboration with NPR called A Nation Engaged. You can learn more about it at cprnews.org. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.